Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called Morenevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, this is uh, Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada, and we're studying Morena Vuchim, the guide for the perplexed, uh, on a weekly basis using the platform of webyeshiva.org's uh, Facebook Live page. And uh, we are finishing today uh, a, a, a chapter that took us a little bit more time, spread over several weeks, chapter 46 of the first section. Um, and we are using the uh, Shlomo Pines uh, English translation of the Moren of Uchim. Uh, and so if you're following along with us, uh, in the text, it's on page 102. We also have a handout for you today, as we try to do at every shear, and you can find that uh, if you open up a new tab on your browser and open up for, uh, in, in Facebook, the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim, you'll be able to find the PDF document, which has the handout today, which is titled, uh, In Defense of the Sage's Depiction of God. The last order of business that the Rambam seeks to address uh, in discussing today's uh, uh, topic, which is the way that Tanakh, uh, are the Chumash and the Prophets, seem to give uh, corporeal attributes to God himself by attributing to him different bodily organs, which describe the way that God interacts with our world. So the Rambam has thoroughly discussed when those, uh, when those depictions are used and why they are used. The last order of business that he'd like to address in this chapter is to discuss the sages going along with the words of the prophets and seemingly conceding to their corporeal attribution of God. In other words, when you look at the words of Chazal, or the words of Torah Shabbat the words of our oral tradition, you find that the rabbis of the Mishnah and of the Gemara seem to uh, go along with this depiction of God as possessing some kind of body, of having some organs with uh, eyes and ears and hands uh, with which he can liberate the Jews from Egypt and so forth. And we don't find a tremendous amount of explicit uh, uh, verbiage from our sages where they would explicitly distance themselves from this corporealization of God. And that could raise some flags. And it did raise some flags. We know that in the Rambam's own lifetime, there were many detractors, even from within the, the Jewish world, who were critical and who castigated Torah Shabalpeh, the sages. We know that there was an entire Karaite community, for example, that was very opposed to the uh, to the liberties that they perceived that the rabbis took with with Jewish law, their reinterpretation and their uh, alleged distortion of what is written in the text, and also this was probably one of the 
arguments against the sages that in their very, very stylized and metaphorical, uh, uh, allegorical writings, they attribute God with human attributes. This is another criticism. We know that the Rambam had to deal with this kind of criticism, not only from the text that we're going to read today, but in other places in Morena Vuchim, as well as if you look in his introduction to Perak the Rambam's introduction to the Mishnah at the end of Masechet Sanhedrin, which talks about very esoteric ideas about the Messiah and the afterlife, the Rambam has a whole introduction where he discusses the words of the sages and cautions anyone who is going, going to embark in a study of Torah Shabbat that they have to be careful not to do an overly literal reading of the words of our sages, because many times when our sages talk about esoteric ideas, they speak in allegory and metaphor, and those who would deride and criticize the sages by looking at or by pointing to some of their allegories and showing how primitive they are in their depiction of God, those people are not appreciating the fact that Chazal speak in allegory, speak in metaphor. And so the Rambam is doing a similar exercise over here and is defending the words of the sages. So we're here on page 102 in this new paragraph that's on the, the, in the middle of the page. The sages, may their memory be blessed, have made a comprehensive dictum, what we would call in Hebrew a ma'amar klali, a general sweeping statement rejecting everything that is suggested to the estimative faculty by any of the corporeal attributive qualifications mentioned by the prophets. To simplify his words, the rabbis have already told us that there is no way to possibly understand the, prof the, the words in Tanakh uttered by the prophets that seem to give corporeal attributes to God. This ma'amar klali, this general teaching, will indicate to you the doctrine of the corporeality of God did not ever occur, even for a single day to the sages may their memory be blessed, and that this was not, according to them, a matter lending itself to imagination or to confusion. Completely unambiguous in their emphasis that there is no corporeal attribution to God. For this reason, you will find that in the whole of the Talmud and in all of the Midrashim, they keep to the external sense of the dict of the prophets. In other words, they don't even deem it necessary in most situations to clarify that point because it is so obvious to them that God is non-corporeal. This is so because of their knowledge that the matter is safe from confusion and that with regard to it, no error is to be feared in any respect. All the teachings have to be considered as parables and as a guidance conducting the mind uh, that God exists, is the way I would translate the text, that God is a matsui. In other words, one of the reasons, if you recall, why the Rambam uh, says that the prophets gave God physical attribution by calling him alive and calling him moving and animated is because they, they, this was their way of metaphorically emphasizing that God is a living God, that God is aware and is present within our everyday existence. And that's the reason, because typically the human mind can, you know, uh, uh, creates a correlation in, in one's mind between that which is corporeal and that which is real and living. And so that's the only reason why it was clear in our sages' minds that the words of Tanakh are metaphorical. And when the parable is of a consistent nature, as when God may he be exalted as likened to a king, 
who gives orders and prohibitions to and punishes and rewards the people of his country, and who has servants and executives who carry out his orders and do for him what he wishes to be done. So whenever you find these kinds of very metaphorical depictions of the Melech Kel Ram Vinisa as a God who is exalted sitting on his throne, or has all of his servants and his angels worshipping him, as we do find passages in many areas of Tanakh, especially in Ezekiel and Isaiah. So what do the sages do when they encounter those passages? They, I mean the sages, likewise kept to this parable in every passage and spoke in conformity with what the parable requires of speech, of a favorable answer being given, or of a refusal with regard to a particular matter, and of such other actions that are typical of kings. In other words, the rabbis went along with the metaphor, and many times they embellish the metaphor that appears in Tanakh, and they depict God even further as a king, or as a, a, a benevolent father. Or, and many times you find a, a classic example is uh, when Rabbi Yishmoel Kohen Gadol, uh, one Yom Kippur, enters into the Holy of Holies, and he hears the voice of an angelic representation of God's voice, saying, Yishmoel b'ni borcheni, Yishmoel, my son, give me a blessing. So this is a very, very corporeal kind of story. I mean, it, it sort of it attributes to God that sense of dependency upon man and also some kind of physical attribution of needing a blessing. And all of these, again, are understood by the Rambam to be metaphorical, continuing al along the tradition of the prophets. In all this, they felt themselves sure and safe and that there would never be confusion or difficulty with regard to this point. Now, I told you that there's a mamar klali, says the Rambam. There's a general dictum, a general teaching, where the rabbis make it crystal clear that they understand that this is all metaphor when they encounter this in Tanakh. So what is this metaphor? What is this uh, ma'amar klali? What is this general teaching? It is found in the Midrash Bereshit Rabbah, which reads as follows. And we'll read it in Hebrew so that we understand that actually the Rambam only quotes a portion of the Midrash. And in source number one in our handout, we have the full text. Amar Rabbi Yudan, Gadol kochan shel neviim shenedamim tsura liotsura. How great is the power of the prophets, the koach, the power of the prophets. And what do we mean by how great is their power? The Rambam will explain what that means, but it means that they have the, uh, like a certain audacity, a certain uh, a will and a certain strength to go out on a limb and say something that is somewhat astonishing. They are strong in their ability to do that because they need to do so in order to get across a point. But it indicates a sign of strength. And what is this strength? What is the audacious thing that they do? Shemidamin tsura liotsra. They take a form and they compare it to the creator of that form, which means we know that God has no form, but they take something which, which a corporeal form that one can conjure in their mind, and they attribute that form to the creator of all forms. Okay? Shenema. And here the Medrash tells us first the verse from Daniel, which the Rambam does not quote. And the verse in Daniel says, kol adam ulai, that I heard the voice of a man along or amidst the waters of the, of the Ulai River, where D Daniel was having this prophetic experience. 
And here it says he hears the voice of a man. So the fact that he hears the voice of God, which is depicted as the voice of a man, shows us that uh, the prophets gave, some, gave God some kind of physical attribute of having a voice. And then we have the next part, which is what the Rambam is, continues quoting from, Amar Rabbi Yehuda bar Simon, Itlan karya uchran demuchuvar yater mindain. We have an even better verse that sort of illustrates how far the prophets went out on a limb to uh, metaphorically uh, attribute God with corporeality. Shenamar, as it says in the first chapter of Ezekiel, va'al demut hakisei demut, Adam alav milamala, that on the divine throne, on the on the heavenly chariot of God's throne, there was the image of, or a, a sitting on this throne, was a being who had the image of a human being that who was sitting above it. Here, an attribution of God being akin to a human being, sitting on a throne, is the vision of Ezekiel. Now, the Rambam doesn't quote the verse from Daniel, he only quotes the verse from Ezekiel. Why is that? Because, as the Medrash itself says, the verse from Ezekiel is superior to the verse from Daniel. I would like to conjecture that the reason why the verse from Ezekiel is superior to the verse from Daniel is because the verse from Daniel only talks about Daniel hearing a, vo a human voice as being an allegory for God's, commu God's communication. But Ezekiel is having an actual vision of seeing the actual visage of God. And, of course, seeing is greater than hearing. So hearing a voice is one level of, of sort of depicting God in human form. But actually seeing the image of a human being, and which represents God, is an even, is an even more powerful depiction going even further out on a limb. Okay. Now, we continue. They have thus made clear and manifest that all the forms apprehended by all the prophets in the vision of prophecy are created forms of which God is the creator. So, essentially, what the Rambam is extracting from that one small, very terse midrash is that the rabbis are completely cognizant that when the, rabbi, that when the prophets give God corporeal attributions, it's all... Uh, it's all by way of allegory. It's all by way of metaphor. And this is correct, for every imagined form is created. Uh, and what the Rambam means over here is that when God imbues prophecy, a prophetic image, within a, uh, within a prophet, the image that appears to the prophet was created by God. God created that. So therefore, when they say, Shemidamin Sura Liyotzra, they compare the image in the mind of the prophet to the creator of that image. They're actually quite accurate. There's a lot of discussion here among the, the uh, uh, commentaries, but what I've presented to you is the simplest understanding of what the Rambam is, is basically saying, is that God creates an image so that the prophet can understand him, and that's why the prophets speak in human terms in describing God, because that's the way that God wants them to envision God. In other words, it's not just that the prophet needs to do that and he needs to extemporaneously depict God of, of his own volition in human, in human uh, terms with human attributes, but it's that God himself is, in, is endowing the prophet that vision because God wishes to be viewed in human 
terms with corporeal attributes because he recognizes that man can only relate to God on that level. How admirable is their saying, great is the power. Now the Rambam is going to explain what he means by what the Medrash means when it says, Gadol Kochan Shel Nevi'im, how great is their power. What does that term mean? And so the Rambam is going to cite another place in Shas, another place in Torah Ba'al Peh, where the sages use the term Gadol Kocha, as though to say that they, peace beyond them, meaning a peace on the sages, considered this matter a great thing. For they always speak in this way when they express their appreciation of the greatness of something said or done, but whose appearance is shocking. Meaning, whoa, this is really, this is a, this, this sort of takes your breath away when they talk about God with corporeal attributes, but nonetheless it is great because it is necessary and it succeeds in accomplishing what needs to be accomplished, which is to create some kind of connection between the human being and God. Now, where do we see Gadol Kochan or Gadol Kocho elsewhere in Shas? He gives an illustration. It's a Gemara in Tractate Yevamot, Daf Kuf Dalet Amid Aleph, page 104a, which states the following story. Now, here, it's important to know that the Gemara is talking about the mitzvah of Chalitza, the mitzvah of severing a connection where normally Yibum or Leveret marriage would take place, we know from the Torah that if a man dies without children, there is a mitzvah for the, the, the decedent's brother to marry the widow of the decedent. If there is a, a refusal uh, for that marriage to take place, then there is a process called chalitza, where uh, the woman uh, removes the widow, goes in front of the rabbis with this brother of the decedent, takes off his shoe, spits in front of his shoe uh, and, uh, and basically says, so shall be done to the man who will not build the house of his brother. Okay, And there are many uh, restrictions on how this mitzvah of chalitza is supposed to be done. It has to be done in front of a tribunal. It has to be done during the day. It has to be done with a shoe that is made from leather. But of course, all of those qualifications that I've just told you uh, are the source of some controversy. There's a source of dispute. And so they say about a certain rabbi, and the, the Gemara gives us the illustration as follows. Rabba Barbarchia Ketuspa'a. There was a sage named Rabba Barchia from Katuspa. Avad Uvda Bemok Uviyechidi Uvalayla. He actually... Uh, legislated that it was permissible to, for this act of chalitza to take place using a non-leather shoe, a non-leather slipper, without a tribunal present, and to do it at night. So he was in contravention of the three halachot that I just told you is the, what the majority do. But he felt he disagreed with the majority rule on those three areas, and to demonstrate that, he did chalitza in the contrary way. And on that, Omar Shmuel, Kama Rav Guvrei Da'avit Kiyechida'a. How great is the strength of that rabbi who paskined, who went according to the minority opinion instead of the majority opinion. Now, this is very, very interesting that the Rambam should cite this as an example of Rav Kocho, how great is his strength. Because what does that mean, how great is his strength? If you look at Rashi, 
Rashi on that Gemara, which we have cited for you in, in our in our uh, source sheet, source number three, Kamarav Guvrei, Bilashon Genai Amra. Shmuel was being critical of Rabbi Barchia Katuspa because, yes, it's true, there's a minority opinion that chalitza can be done with a non-leather shoe, not in the presence of a tribunal, and it can be done at night. But you don't do that. You have to normally, normative halacha requires that even if you agree with the minority opinion personally, as a matter of public policy, you should go like the majority opinion, so that the Jewish people have one set of laws that is in, in concert with the majority of what the, uh, of, of the consensus of opinions. So the Rambam is citing this as an example of Kama Rav, Kama Gadol Kochan Shel Nevim, how great is the strength of the Nevim, that they're doing something shocking but necessary. And here's bringing an example from this story where this particular sage was criticized uh, in, in, in the, and the criticism was using the, the very similar language of Kamarav Guvrei, how great is the strength. So Rashi says, how great is the strength is a, is a criticism. He shouldn't have flexed his muscles in that way. Well, if, and if you take a look at the Mi'iri, he says, he seems to say that the, the exact same thing. And it, it, this is a Mi'iri in Masechet Nida, Davchaf Amar Aleph. If you take a look at the Rif commentary to our Gemara, um, what Shmuel was saying when he said how great is his strength he was almost being sarcastic and basically saying he's a starker, he thinks he's a strong guy that he can do this we're not going to paskin like that you don't go like the da'at yachid you don't go like the uh, minority opinion you go like the majority opinion so why does the Rambam cite this in, as an example but let's see what he says. They say, as it were, how great was the thing, uh, or how great is his strength means how great is his power. Now, to connect that, the Rambam says, they say, as it were, how great was the thing that the prophets were driven to do when they indicated the essence of God, may he be exalted, by means of the created things that he created. Understand this thoroughly. Okay. The Rambam seems to be taking this Gemara in Yavamot, even though from a halachic standpoint, when a person is going to side with a minority rule and do something truly shocking and go out on a limb, he may not be doing something that can be sanctioned as a matter of public policy, but it still is within his rights if he feels that he has studied the matter thoroughly and is very, very clear on what he is doing, that it is perfectly legal and legitimate. But that doesn't necessarily mean that as a matter of public policy we're going to rule like him. And I think that all the Rambam is simply doing is extracting extracting from this particular passage in Tractate Yevamot regarding Chalitza, that even when you end up disagreeing with someone because you think they've gone too far, but you can say, Kamarav Kocho, how strong that person must feel in their conviction, and that they're doing something good and virtuous, even when it's shocking and unacceptable to the masses. Okay, And the point being is that the prophets are doing the same thing. It, at face value, it's got shock value, it's shocking, and it even seems unacceptable to a more provincial or simple-minded person who hears them speaking about God in corporeal terms. But essentially what the sages are saying is, yes, it's obvious that this is not correct. It's obvious that God is, does not have a body. 
But the prophets speak in this way, even though what they're clearly saying is not correct, just like this Rabba Barchia Katuspa was not correct, but nonetheless they need to say it for some particular uh, issue that they wish to emphasize or to demonstrate. And of course, as the Rambam says, it's necessary to Dibra Torah Bilshon B'nai Adam or Kilshon B'nai Adam, the Torah has to use terminology that human beings can appreciate. And therefore, even though we will not accept this concept in its literal sense, there is no such thing as God having a body or a form. Nonetheless, what they did was, took a lot of guts, took a lot of strength, and it was necessary. They have thus made clear and manifest, as far as they themselves are concerned, that they were clean of the belief in the corporeality of God. They absolutely don't subscribe to that. And furthermore, that all the shapes and figures that are seen in the vision of prophecy 